Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Consider Christ. Last time we were together, we walked through a relatively broad overview of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 11, specifically in order to understand how the context of Paul's teaching does not lend itself to the idea, it does not teach that we can lose our salvation. Nor does the text lend itself to the interpretation that Paul is warning uh, unbelievers there that they can fall short of salvation, but rather, remember we talked about the three different tracks of interpretation there. The first being um, that a person can lose their salvation. The second being that uh, Paul was warning a group of people who were not saved that they would fall short of salvation. And third, that, there was, that, that the text meant something else entirely. And as we walked through it, we, made it, uh, we, we talked about how, um, well, the losing salvation in, uh, in one interpretive stance makes sense. The you're not saved and you're going to fall short of salvation to begin with doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the context. And then, of course, the something else entirely. And then as we walked through that, we decided and we recognized from the illustrations, from what was happening, from uh, Paul carrying this, this illustration over into uh, the nature of Moses leading into the promised land, their refusal to enter into the God's rest in the promised land, and instead wandering in the wilderness, uh, we, we came to recognize interpretively as we compared Scripture with Scripture, going to 1 Corinthians 10 and understanding the picture there of the promised land and of Egypt, and when it was that the picture of salvation would fit into the Exodus, which is the Red Sea, and then the wanderings in the wilderness or the, the getting up to the, the promised land and then the wanderings being not falling short of salvation, but falling short of God's rest, right? Falling short of abiding in Christ, falling short of the victorious Christian life. And we walked through all of this. The essence of Paul's argument most naturally understood not to be speaking of salvation at all, but rather an opportunity that we have for those who are already in Christ to enter into the fullness of joy and of peace through careful obedience. Or as the beginning of chapter 2 says, that we ought to take more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And that makes perfect sense because that's our context and that's what Paul is warning about. Now, Paul continues to give this reasoning in chapter 3. And now we're going to go back after that broad overview message and we're going to consider these verses in more detail. This week, verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews 3. With an implicit understanding that Paul is not warning about losing or falling short of your salvation, let's walk through the text and understand what Paul is saying. And of course, first, these six verses, which are the beginning, in a sense, of a further example of the same argument that Paul has been espousing since the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Throughout Hebrews, we have been reading about Christ's superiority to all of the other people and institutions and creations that God had previously employed to serve him and to reflect him to the world. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 speak of Jesus as being superior to the law and to the prophets, Right? First beginning with the prophets, then the angels, as those who, the words spoken by angels, were, were in disposition of or, or were in authority over the law, so that Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. And then, of course, in, in chapters 1 and 2 as well, more directly in chapter 2, Christ's superiority, not just to the law and the prophets, but also to the angels themselves, right? To angelic beings, to the, the 
uh, reality of God's commission upon the angels versus the reality of God's commission upon Jesus Christ. And as Paul sought to reconcile the nature of Jesus taking on humanity, a creation made lower than the angels in essential dignity and power, with, the, his, with Jesus Christ's superiority to the angels, he uses this reality of the fact that Jesus, by inheritance, not because he was uh, created, uh, a created being like the angels were, or not because uh, he was a man of greater power, for indeed he took on human flesh, he did not take on the nature of angels, but because of his obedience, he obtained a more excellent name than they by inheritance. And then, of course, he connects that to us as those who share Christ's human nature, and we can also one day be exalted in co-inheritance with Christ in his victory. So Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than the prophets. Christ is greater than the law. And this means that Christ's life and his ministry and his message ought to take greater precedence in our lives than any of these other ministers, right? Anything that an angel, an angelic messenger might be credited with, well, that's all well and good, but Christ is greater. His message is greater. Anything that the law and the prophets told us is, is, is all well and good. These aren't bad things or evil things by any means. We already covered that, right? That Paul makes it very clear that the law is not wrong, but Christ's message, Christ's ministry, Christ's life is a heightened message to that of the law and the prophets. These other things, the, uh, the law and the prophets and these angels, are inferior reflections of God compared to the one who, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, calls the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. And today we see that Christ is greater, not just than the angels, not just than the prophets, not just than the law, but greater as well, and specifically here, more faithful, than that prophet by whom God gave the law by the word spoken by angels, that man being Moses. And again, allow me to stress Paul's audience here. Paul was writing to a group of Jewish believers. Moses is a deeply revered figure in Jewish history. Perhaps among most Jews, the greatest figure in all of their history may be second only to Elijah in the minds of some. And we can know this not just from history, but even when Jesus was transfigured, if you recall, on the mount before Peter and James and John, who was it that appeared and spoke with Jesus in his transfigured state, according to Matthew 17? Well, it was Moses and Elijah, right? The prototypical representation of the law and the prophets. To this end, we know just how important Moses is to the Hebrew mind and how important it is then that Paul make this argument. So let's dig into the text. Verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So our text today begins with a wherefore, and this is a natural word of both transition and of application, whereby Paul is not only moving on to something else, but he is linking what he's moving on to and, and, and the application he's making to what has come before. And the immediate context of this wherefore is actually another wherefore. So Paul is 
stacking wherefores on top of each other here. In Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 18, he said this, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, that would be Jesus, right? But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or comfort them that are tempted. So follow the argument with me. Jesus is greater than the angels. Not because he was made a man, for he was made a man by necessity in order that he might taste death for every man, but rather by his obedience and submission to the Father, and so exaltation, and by the inheritance bestowed upon him through his obedience. And we, by virtue of our association with Christ's redemption, through humanity and faith, will also be exalted above angels. But also, and this is what we see in verses 17 and 18, we find that Christ's humanity and his victory enables him not only to bring us into redemption, but also to comfort the believer in temptation. So he doesn't just redeem us, but he also comforts us in temptation because he too was tempted. And it is this that compels us to consider the difference and the nature of the difference between Moses and Jesus. Because as we are tempted, so too is Israel in its own day. That's what Paul is getting into as he begins to talk about the nature of Moses' leadership over the nation. And then as Moses will con uh, transition, as we saw last week, and you know, for, uh, as he continues in Hebrews 3, into this illustration of Israel standing at the gate of the promised land and then refusing to enter in. What we see here is a contrast between Israel's temptation and our own. And where Paul is going with this is where Moses led Israel through the wilderness and he brought them to the place of temptation and they failed in that day of temptation, though he was faithful in all his house. Those who follow Jesus Christ and we meet our own day of temptation will find that Jesus is not only the one who leads us, but he is also a faithful high priest who can, in the day of temptation, help us have victory. And so Paul says, wherefore? And notice, as we stressed last week, Paul calls these readers holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. And as I was considering how I presented the message last week, I feel as though there were a couple of points in which I wasn't as clear as maybe I wanted to be. And I believe this is one of them. In that Paul calls them holy brethren, we have all confidence that Paul is writing to people who he fully expects and believes to be born-again believers. And so in writing in a believing context, recall this is why we set aside the idea that Paul is warning unbelievers about falling short of salvation. He doesn't work within that context because that's not his context. But beyond that, Paul also calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. And last week I connected this with 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul calls himself and Timothy those who had a holy calling. But what I feel I didn't express well is that by not only calling them holy brethren, but also calling them partakers of the heavenly calling, it seems likely that Paul is not just saying here that he anticipates them being believers but that he also regards them as those who, 
know what it is to abide in Christ. That they are those who have partaken in the calling of those who are in Christ, the calling of walking with Christ. Or as Paul would describe it later in chapters 3 and 4, these believers knew what it was to live in Christ's rest. And so Paul's exhortation was that they who were both holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling and those who had lived within the light of the calling that God places upon the lives of believers to walk with him and to abide in him would not then through unbelief in a day of temptation fall short of that calling. And so Paul's exhortation is to consider the one who has given them this calling. He says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Consider him. The apostle and high priest, Jesus Christ. The word apostle speaks of one who is sent or a representative of another. Oftentimes when we use the word apostle, we speak of those 12 who were Jesus' direct representatives, uh, those who uh, Christ had commissioned to go and to share the gospel. We also recognize that Barnabas is called in the book of Acts an apostle. So we see several people that were, were, were called apostles. And as we walk through that teaching, which we're not going to do tonight, we find that there seem to be specific conditions by which a person could have been called an apostle. And yet the word itself goes well beyond just the theological meaning within the church and roots itself in this simple idea of one who speaks for another, one who is sent by another, one who represents another. Working all the way back to our understanding of Jesus from chapter 1, that Jesus is the express image of God. So Paul calls Jesus here the apostle of our profession, the one who was sent by God to represent God, and the one who also represents the essence of our profession and faith, the delegated representative of the Father to the world. And when we accept Jesus Christ, we accept the representative of the Father, that would be Jesus, and so accept the Father. So if Jesus is the apostle of our profession, but he's also the high priest of our profession, in other words, it's not just that we accept Jesus as the representative of the Father, but then Jesus also becomes the God-ordained mediator by which we, we come to the Father. Then we have a very unique relationship with Jesus Christ, one which, in a sense, Moses had too, but only as a shadow of things that were to come. And this is the concept that Paul establishes at the end of chapter 2, that Jesus is not just a messenger, not just a representative, but he is also a mediator between God the Father and man, functioning to intercede between the Father and those who are his children by faith. And the thing that Paul wants us to consider about Christ Jesus is the nature of his faithfulness as steward over the house of God. So that in verse 2, Paul says, Jesus was faithful to him that appointed him and likens this to Moses, saying, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. And there's a little bit of ambiguity in the text here. This is another area where I did not relate well what the text is actually saying. When the Bible says Moses was faithful in all his house, the question is, who is the his? What is the pronoun antecedent agreement here? Is the house Moses' house or is the house 
God's house? And in this case, the answer is quite plain from Numbers chapter 12. As God spoke in Numbers chapter 12, he said this to Miriam and Aaron. He said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. The context of God's words here is a rebuke. At the time when Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because Moses had married an Ethiopian woman. And so they were murmuring against him. They were questioning his capacity to lead. They were undermined his ordained authority that, that God had given to Moses. And so the Lord rebuked them. And this is the rebuke. That whereas in nearly every other situation throughout history, God saw fit when he spoke to a prophet to speak to that prophet in visions and in dreams. Moses, on the other hand, was very different. Moses' faithfulness was of such quality that God chose to speak to Moses mouth to mouth. And then he asks Aaron and Miriam in verse 8, Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So when Paul states to the Hebrew audience that Moses was faithful in all his house, it's very likely that their minds would have connected directly to that important passage in the Torah in Numbers 12, showing just how special Moses was to God. And again, I mentioned it, I mentioned it again, that Moses was, in a very real sense, a mediator between the nation of Israel and God as well. If you recall, back when God gave the Ten Commandments, God initially spoke to the people personally from the mountain, and the mountain flamed with fire, and it burned, and there was thunders and lightnings, and he spoke to the people, and he gave them these Ten Commandments, and the people were terrified, and they were so deeply terrified that they said, Moses, never let God speak to us again, but rather you speak to God, and then you speak to us, and we will regard your words as the very words of God, so that what you tell us, we will believe as God's word. And God did not rebuke them for this. In fact, God said they have done well. This is a good thing. Why? Because they were positioning themselves to be willing to accept a mediatorial role. All of that being said, however, Moses wasn't the high priest in Israel, was he? Moses was a prophet who spoke for God, but he was not the actual spiritual mediator between Israel and God. Aaron was. So while Moses had a mediatorial function, he was most certainly not the high priest. And this is important for us to understand. For all of the ability that Moses had as the apostle over those who came out of Egypt, he was God's representative who spoke for God and represented God. He was not the high priest Aaron was. Moses did not and could not help the people in their hour of temptation to exercise faith and so enter into the land. For all of Moses' faithfulness, the people who followed him still failed, still faltered, still fell in the wilderness through a lack of faith. And this will be the contrast. For all who are both holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling, those who are described in verse 6 as Christ's house, Christ is not only an apostle here to lead us, to represent the Father unto us, but he is also a high priest to mediate for us and to help us in our temptations. Verse 3. For this man, Moses, was counted 
uh, Jesus, excuse me, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. So verse 3 tells us that Christ is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And remember the account that Paul is connecting this with. When Aaron and Miriam murmured against Moses and were rebuked directly by God. And Christ is worthy of more glory more defense, more honor than Moses, in the same way, Paul says, as the man who builds a house has more honor than the house he built. In the same way that the Creator is given more honor than his creation. For though Moses was counted as a steward over God's house, Moses was also a man, was he not? And a part of the house that God had built. He also was of Israel. He also was called unto that same faith. So while he was a steward, he was also a part of the house. In the same way you might say that your pastor is the leader uh, and I lead the flock and yet I am also one of the sheep. Right? I am also a sheep of Christ's pasture, though I am also a shepherd over the flock of God. But Jesus was not just, he was not a part of the house, he was the builder of the house. If I see a beautiful piece of art a beautiful piece of art is certainly worthy of admiration. And if it is, how much more worthy of admiration is the artist who had the vision and the skill to create the piece of art? Moses, as a man, was worthy of honor for his faithfulness as a steward over God's house. But how much more honor is, worthy, uh, is, is worth giving to Jesus? There we go. As the creator of man and the builder of that house. And this is what Paul says in verse 4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. God has created all things. God is worthy of greater honor than man who builds the house. And notice that Paul connects honoring Jesus as the one who built the house with honoring God who built the house. Letting us see here that Paul regards Jesus as God. For God built all things, and Jesus built this house, therefore he is worthy of this honor. And as we mentioned last time, so too let me remind you. While Paul is using the illustration of an house as an actual building, this is only an illustration. For when we said in Numbers 12 that Moses, when God said in Numbers 12 that Moses was faithful over God's house, and when Paul speaks of Jesus being faithful over the house that Jesus built, he's not speaking of a physical building. There are some that believe that the tabernacle is the idea there in Numbers 12, but that doesn't ring true to me at all. He's not speaking of a physical building, he's speaking of a household a collection of souls, a family. A family which in Israel's case was blood relation with a subset of that blood-related family that was living as God's house. So you had those that were, you had the whole family who passed through the sea, entered the covenant of, of uh, the law, and so were in God's house. But then only a subset of that which was of God's house, the faithful and the believing, and this is contrasted with the New Testament where the household of God is not connected with blood or, or with blood family at all, but rather the church being the house. 
and all who accept Jesus Christ are in God's house, and those who believe him by faith and appropriate it are of God's house. And the call for us is to live this way as well. Verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So verse 5 paints the contrast of which I have spoken plainly, that Moses was faithful in all his house, but as a servant. Moses was given stewardship over the house of God, made a representative over the house of God, but he was not the builder of the house. He was not the one that called them out of Egypt. He was not the one that plagued Pharaoh. When Moses said, let my people go, Moses was not asking Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses was being the mouthpiece of God, God telling Pharaoh, let God's people go. And God organized it this way very intentionally, that Moses' life and his ministry and his faithfulness might exist as a shadow of a greater reality that was to come a shadow of another representative, like unto Moses, but greater still by far, not just an apostle to represent himself to the nation, this nation being the nation of the church at this point, but also the great high priest, not just a faithful servant over God's house, but a faithful creator over his own house as God. So verse 6 says, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. Christ is not a steward over God's house. Christ is the son and heir over the house that he built. And what is this house? Well, we are this house. And this is the great controversy of which we spoke last time. That while all who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior are children of the living God, in Christ we are holy brethren, and so we are ushered into the house in that sense. Yet the Bible speaks of a difference between those who are followers of Christ by faith in the house and those who are living up to the name by which they are called of the house. The difference of being in the house and of the house. We've talked before about this as it relates to children, right? As my children get older, my children are going to be living in the house with their parents. And yet the question as to whether they will be of the house, the question of how it is that they will represent the name of Wickler, will they live up to the expectations that their parents have set upon them? That's their choice, right? They don't get to choose whether or not they were born and lived in my house but they do get to choose whether or not they appropriate the lessons that I have taught them and so are a reflection of my, my expectations upon them. Are they of my house? Now, in the case of salvation, we exercise our right of volition to accept or to reject the finished work of Jesus Christ and so enter into the house. But once we are in the house, there is still the question of whether or not we are going to live of the house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. And that's the summary that we gave last time. This is a true conditional statement here, truly that, that we are only his house if we hold fast this confidence. Those who do not hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end fall short of God's house 
Not that they lose their salvation or they don't go to heaven, but rather that they fail to live up to the name by which they are called and so fail by proxy of not living up to the name and not walking in fellowship with the one who built the house. They fail to enjoy the benefits of the inheritance that is intended for those in Christ. And that's the idea. As we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm, we have the privilege of living under the faithful guidance, but also the faithful mediation and help of the great apostle and high priest of our profession, so that as we submit ourselves to this faithful minister, we align ourselves with all of the blessings of Christ's house, and so have in Christ both blessings and guidance. And the picture is connected to Moses' day where all, that, all of Israel passed through the sea. They were all baptized into the cloud and in the sea. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, with many of them, the Lord was not pleased. They were all in Israel. They were all in that house. But of that first generation, only two of them were of the house, Joshua and Caleb. Because the rest, when they were given the opportunity to enter into Christ's rest, Refused it. And as we spoke of last time, so too we are reminded that spiritually speaking, there are three types of people in this world. There are those who are unbelievers. Unbelievers are separated from God, blinded by the deceitfulness of sin, as Ephesians 2 describes, having no hope and without God in this world. As Ephesians 4 goes on to say, walking in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. And then there are believers. So those are unbelievers. Then there are believers, children of God, who are in the house, but who are not living of the house, who are not living up to the name of Christ who are not walking worthy of the vocation. They're in Christ, but they're not abiding in Christ. They're salt that has lost its savor, and so it is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast down and trodden underfoot of men. They are men abiding not in Christ, and so cast forth as a branch and withered. Those who have come out of the world, yet live for the world. What we would often call carnal Christians. And this carnality means that you live in a state of separation, not from the life of God, for indeed you have that new nature in Christ, but from his joy and his confidence and his peace and his rest. You are the servant who buries his talent in the ground. And thus the promises of God's house are known to you because you live in the house, but you're not experiencing those promises for yourself because you're not of the house. You don't have them because you aren't living by God's rules. You aren't being sustained by God's power. You are a rebel in the house of God and so have no access to the privileges and blessings of the house. One of the rules we have in our house, you know, we, we, we've, we've our society has been so very segregated into ages, right? And the children will say, when I'm such and such an age, do I get to do this? When I'm 16, do I get to drive? When I'm 18, do I get this? Whatever. And we say, well, you'll get, you'll get privileges when you are responsible. You show yourself responsible and you get privileges. 
When you have matured to the point where you are responsible for something, then you get the privileges of those things. As long as you show yourself responsible, you maintain the privilege. If you cease to show yourself responsible, you cease to have the privilege. As those who are in God's house, the blessings of Christ are not ours by default. The blessings are there for us to access as we align ourselves with our Father. And as we align ourselves with the rules of the house, as we live of the house, we reap all of the promises, benefits, and blessings of the house. But they're not given to us just because we're in the house. They are ours as we live of the house. And that's that final group. So you have the unbeliever, alienated from the life of God. You have the believer who is in Christ, but not walking of Christ. In the house, but not of the house, who is living as a carnal Christian. And then finally, you have those who are both in God's house and of God's house who have appropriated all of the lessons and the expectations of their father, who represent him, who walk according to his way, who serve him faithfully in his house, who hold to our confidence in our profession and in Christ's way, who live in the rejoicing of the world to come, not in the world that is before me. I don't live for this life. I live for the life that is to come. And as I live in this manner of determined condition, uh, submission and faith, I reap all of the benefits and joys of the house. I have access to the fullness of the house, all of the privileges of the house and of my new birth. Now, all of this is given by Paul so that when he takes us back to that account of Israel's failure, which he's going to do as he continues in Hebrews 3, their failure to enter into the promised land, we will have the right frame of reference that as we are called here to be the house of the living God, to live in these promises and these privileges, we have the example of a nation who was given the same opportunity but rejected it. And their consequence can serve to us as both a warning and a motivation to walk a different path. And this warning is what we will study in the coming weeks. Before this evening, we need to pause and understand something very important. As Paul said at the beginning of chapter 3, his proposition statement, as it were, consider him the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Take a moment to remember, carefully and definitively, that we have an apostle and a high priest who is calling us unto the very greatest of heavenly joys. Not the greatest of earthly happiness. Not the greatest of earthly wealth. Not the greatest of earthly prosperity. Not the greatest of earthly honor. But the confidence and rejoicing of hope that comes from submission to God's house. And first, this should call us to fear. That as Aaron and Miriam failed to fear in their day and so spoke against God's apostle, God's servant, who was faithful, Moses, that we have an apostle and high priest who we are called to follow as holy brethren. And if we should, if we can look back at the example of Miriam and Aaron and say, wow, they really messed up in that they spoke against this man who was faithful in all God's house. 
how much more should we take care that we not be rebellious against one who is greater than Moses, who is not just the apostle of our profession, but the high priest of our profession, who was faithful in all of his house, not just as a steward of the house, but as the one who built the house. And this should well up inside of us a holy fear of ignoring the heavenly calling given to us who are in Christ to follow him, to hold fast his confidence, and to rejoice in hope for him to the end. And this inspires one more detail that I'd like to draw out this evening before we're finished. Numbers 12 is the account of Aaron and Miriam failing to regard the message and the authority of Moses as God's appointed servant. Following this, God in his wrath departs from the tabernacle and strikes Miriam with leprosy. Aaron begs God for forgiveness. Moses cries unto the Lord for mercy. And God decrees that Miriam will be leprous for seven days, after which she would be healed. And the people do not travel for those seven days. Instead, waiting until Miriam is healed to travel. And this is where things get interesting and important. We read this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 16. It's the final verse in Numbers 12. And then going into chapter 13. And afterward, the people removed from Hazaroth and pitched in the wilderness of Paran. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of their fathers, shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. So the people travel again. After Miriam and Aaron have rebelled against Moses, have spoken against Moses, Miriam is struck, stricken with leprosy for seven days. She is healed, and once she is healed, the people travel again, and they get up from Hadzeroth, and they go and they pitch in the wilderness of Paran. And the next stop on their journey after this rebellion is what? It's, it's the gate to the promised land. It, the, the next stop on their journey is this next controversy that we're going to consider in Hebrews 3 and 4. They go directly to the place where God will commission the spies to go out into the land of Canaan, after which ten will call the people to reject the land, and two will call the people to receive the land. And of course, we'll begin talking about that next week. But notice this. The direct precursor to the rejection of the land of promise was a rejection of the authority of God's messenger. This is a very important point. It is not a coincidence that Paul uses Numbers 12 to draw a comparison between Moses and Jesus before using what, he'll, what will be Numbers 13 and 14 to draw a comparison between our faith and that of Israel's to enter into rest. Christian, if you find yourself living on that middle ground where you have accepted Christ as your Savior, but you're not living in victory and joy and peace as God's Word says you, could, you should be, if you're in the house but not of the house and you're wondering what's going on, we'll find that it comes down not just to whether or not you've seen the land and, and rejected the land, but much rather, what are you doing with the messenger? 
Have you considered Christ as the apostle and high priest of your profession? Are you following Christ? Or have you, in your mind or in your heart, though you would never say this verbally, or, 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 or uh, it would be a rare thing, not never, right? It would be a rare thing for one to stand in direct opposition to Jesus Christ in actual concept. Are you, by manner of thinking, living, choosing, rejecting the authority of the messenger? Because if you're rejecting the authority of the messenger, the next step is to reject the rest. And I mean like the rest, not the rest. It's the rest and the rest. Both rests. Everything else and God's rest. And this has been the whole point of the book of Hebrews thus far, hasn't it? The whole book of the point of Hebrews so far has been You've got all of these things about the Bible that you look up to and revere. In the, for the Hebrews, that would be the law and the prophets and angels and Moses. And all of those are wonderful things and they're great things. But Christ is greater. And the whole point of the book so far is give the more earnest heed to the message of Christ. Don't let the things of Christ slip because your faith is in Jesus. And this is what we are called to do this evening. Consider him. Understand fully who it is that is telling you the blessings of the promised land. See, Everybody loves the blessings of the promised land. But not everyone is willing to align themselves with the one who has given the promise. Understand Christ's authority. Understand Christ's ability. Understand the consequences of ignoring him, of marginalizing him, of rejecting him. But understand as well that when we step out in faith to do what he's called us to do, he's not just the apostle telling us what to do. He's the high priest comforting us, mediating for us, and helping us do it. Israel didn't have that. We say, Pastor, I would never, never speak against and, or question the authority of Jesus Christ. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And that's what our lips say, but what is our life saying? Does our life bear the fruit of Jesus' teachings? Or are we like Aaron and Miriam, who did not fear to question the authority of the servant of God in their own minds, who did not fear to speak against the one who is faithful in God's house? And to that degree, Perhaps not just plant that seed themselves, but plant that seed in the minds of a nation who was about to come to the edge of the promised land and reject it. And understand what the consequences might be that, ha that rested on them for that example and that rest on us as well. If we fail to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.